for the most part, about practical things, letting us know what a good Christian life, productive Christian life would look like. You know, in our society, and especially living here in California, we're maybe more aware of this, there's a certain way in which society assigns a value to people. And it is kind of a sliding scale. You can be really at the top and paparazzi following you around and, and th- there's a list of A-list celebrities that are really hot. You can go on the internet and they have a lot of lists of hot and not. And so these are the ones that are on their way up, they're at the peak, these are the ones that are heading down. And they have formulas based on your name recognition, your income, the number of times that somebody searches for your name on the, on the internet, and different factors that they all jumble in there to say, here is the most valuable person, here's the next, and they have the list. And often you watch people, somebody who could be really near the top, and all of a sudden something happens in their personal life, and whoa, they drop way down. And so they can kind of assign a value to everyone. Martha Stewart said that when she got busted and went to prison for a year, she estimated that over her lifetime, the impact of that cost her about a billion dollars and a lot of loss in popularity as well. She doesn't quite have that same image that she once had. So you have like a, you know, a Brad Pitt or someone like that way at the top and way down at the bottom, well, I don't know, yeah, it'd be pretty low down on the list would be like the guy that played Tattoo on Fantasy Island. And yet, you know, everywhere the poor guy goes, deplane, deplane. He's like, shut up. But, how, you know, but that's just the way it is. That's the way society is. And as much as the celebrities whine about the attention, the truth is they're living for the attention. They really want it. You know, yeah, they're like, oh, I can't even go out to eat without photographers everywhere snapping my picture. Yeah, if you go to Spago or Mr. Chow's, if you really just want to sit down and have a meal and have nobody bother you, go to the Laguna Woods Olive Garden. Nobody's going to be taking your picture. (laughs) Nothing's going to happen. So we even like to complain about the burden of success and What is success? Some of the A-list celebrities are people that are just famous for being famous. They haven't actually accomplished anything. Can't act, can't sing, can't do anything but be on camera. Now, that's the way the world is and we see it. And we realize how tenuous that kind of success is. You can be the American Idol one year and then people are hoping to see a story about how your life has deteriorated since and generally that'll be the case. But the church shouldn't be that way. The church ought to be the kind of place where we don't play favorites, where we don't assign value, where we don't categorize and prioritize people based on our own standards or arbitrary standards or saying, you're worth more than this person. Because that goes completely contrary to the reason why Jesus died for all of us is to take us out of the realm of that kind of, of a competitive atmosphere. Now, here in James, James approaches this subject of, of favoritism, of evaluation, of, of scrutiny of people as to what their worth is based on how they connect with us and relate to us. And, and he's letting the people know 
This isn't the way it ought to be. James chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My brethren. He's not wanting to just scold them or talk down at them. He says, hey, we're in this together. He said, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He's setting a very high standard for the faith, for the belief in who Jesus is and what he has done. And he's not saying, you guys are bad and I'm good. He's saying, we're in this together. And it just shouldn't be that when we are following the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who was, by the way, James' older half-brother. James didn't even believe in him until after he rose from the dead. But now he had come to understand the significance of what his brother Jesus had accomplished. And he goes, partiality, prejudice, that should not be a part of our lives. Now, the word there for partiality is, um, it's really three Greek words that are put together. The, the center word is the word for face. And then there's the word that means toward or before, pros. And the word after that is the Greek word for receive. And what it's basically talking about is it's sort of like receiving someone at face value, or it's, it's looking at people and assigning a value to them. Either I accept you or I reject you based on what I see and also based on you're looking at me. The way that I think you perceive me will define how much value I put in you. What do you have to offer to me? If you could potentially help me, then I value you. If you are of no use to me, then I devalue you. And, and, and James is saying, it shouldn't be that way when it comes to people who have faith in, in Jesus Christ. It just doesn't, it, it, it conflicts with what we say we believe. Now he goes on and says, and he gives an example of it. He says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's postulating a hypothetical extreme case that probably is something that would have never happened in their church. But he's taking this situation and he's going, for instance, what if this happened? And he says, you know, you guys are there and literally, uh, in the, as it says in your assembly, the word there is the word synagogue. Um, and so either they were meeting in the synagogue or because they were Jewish Christians, they were still kind of referring to the church as a synagogue. But he said, there you are, you're worshiping the Lord, studying the word, and a guy comes in and he's just dressed to the nines. He really, he just oozes wealth. The way he carries himself, you don't know who he is, but you know he's someone. And so you say, oh, hey, he's late, of course, you know, but, but you go, hey, come up here. I have a seat for you down in front. And I go, let's see, there's an older woman sitting here in the front row. Just boot her out. Go, you know, go sit in the back somewhere. Take her seat. And then somebody goes, wait, Dave, that's your mom. <laughs> and I go, oh, that's right. Hey, you look like you wouldn't mind sitting, you know. 
And, and you just make that shuffle, you make that adjustment. But he goes, somebody comes in who looks poor, you look at them and go, they're not going to tithe. Why, why should they? If they take up a seat, it might keep, you know, so we have a fellowship hall for people like you right back there. <laughs> Sorry for those of you in the fellowship hall. But, <laughs> but James is going, would you do that? Would that seem weird to you? Would that seem like something that's kind of contradictory to who you are? Now, he's not telling them not to do that because they probably wouldn't have done that in the first place. But he's using that as an example to say, how do you treat people based on your assessment of them? You know, as he, as he says here that uh, in verse 3 where it says you pay attention to, the word means to look at with favor. It means you look at them and go, hey, as opposed to somebody you look at and look away or look through them or look past them. And then in, in verse 4, when he says you've shown partiality, it's a different word for partiality than what's used earlier and probably would be better translated, you're judging them as a play on words because he says you, you've judged them and become judges with evil thoughts. The word there, diacreno, is a word that means to, to well, the word creno, you know, the, the idea of criticize comes from that. And, and dia means through, we have the term a diacritical mark, which is when you're editing a document, you put marks on it in order to you know, fix it. And, and so he's saying, you're looking at people and you are scrutinizing them. You are evaluating them. You are deciding whether they are worth your attention, whether they are worth your trouble, whether they are someone who might be able to help you rather than to look at them and say, Hey, I, I honor you, I respect you, I accept you. Now, there are people who will do things that will cause you to then learn, that's not somebody that I want to spend time with. But what we are talking about here is looking at the surface, looking at someone's economic status or who they know or who they're friends with or the kind of car they drive or the clothes they wear or whatever, and just saying, you know what? I can look at you right now and size you up. I can tell the kind of person that you are, and you just don't have much to offer for me. And he says, when you do that, you become judges with evil thoughts. As soon as you start evaluating people, you're already judging them, and evil thoughts already come into play. See, because if I am criticizing you, I'm going to look at your weaknesses. I'm going to look at that about you of which I may be critical about. Because those are the things that stand out. And it's so easy for us to gravitate toward what's wrong. It's so easy for us to look at people or situations and go, instead of seeing the good, look at it and go, yeah, but this is wrong and this is wrong. And you see this in all areas of life and in the church too. Anytime you do anything, there are going to be people who come up with you know, a critical evaluation of it. There are going to be people who look at the chandeliers and go, I don't know, I kind of like the old ugly green ones over these bronze ones. And, you know, why did they paint that wall blue? And they painted the dove white, and it should be cream. And, you know, the beams, I, I miss those old brown beams. I, these new ones are just, what are you, are you trying to be hip? What are you doing? And, and it's like, well, did you come and offer to, to, to paint the sanctuary? Of course not. But it's so easy to take shots at what other people do. 
And then what we do is, in an evil way, we just put people in a category. We just look at them and we go, you're this and you're that and you're the other. And I can pretty much make my list of people who are the most important, people who are the top-level celebrities in the body of Christ, and people who really don't matter at all, who just aren't there. And, Paul, and James here is saying, that's evil. That's just wrong. You're just doing what the world does. You're taking their standards and imputing them into who the world is. Now he says in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Now, what James isn't saying is, you don't get it. You know, you favor rich people, rich people are dirtbags. It's the poor people that are elevated that God cares about. That's not what he's saying. It can kind of sound that way, but when you think about it logically, it couldn't be the case because there were godly rich people, certainly in the New Testament, and there were really evil poor people as well. But what he's saying is, by you judging based on these external categories, there are some really good people that you'll miss out on just because they happen to look a certain way or just because they happen to not be as privileged or they don't have as much. You know, and, it, and, and on the other hand, he says, there's plenty of people that would meet that criteria, but you get to know them, and they may be beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're really disgusting. And he's going, haven't you experienced that? It's kind of like, okay, you go to the church and you say, wow, here's somebody who has a lot of money, there's a lot they could do for the church, um, let's just put them in charge. Let's make them the leader. Well, I mean, then you should just get Donald Trump. Would anybody really want Donald Trump to be the head of their board of elders? Because he's certainly richer than anybody we have here. But what James is saying is, just because you're wealthy, there are certain conclusions that you might draw that could be very wrong based on that. And not only that, if you're excluding poor people, there are some poor people who are just as godly and wonderful and as caring and loving as anyone you'd ever want to know. And you go, somebody like, so, so therefore you would say, Donald Trump, glad to see you. But if, uh, you know, Mother Teresa, who, who has died, but if she came along, you'd go, an old beggar-looking woman? Nah, you know, I'm not interested and then they go, but she won the Nobel Peace Prize. You go, hmm, maybe I am interested. But she gave away the million-dollar prize. Oh, yeah, sorry. You know, just go ahead and sit in the back. It's okay. <laughs> He's going, in the church, you really, are, are you going to be that stupid that you think that you can just look at someone and instantly know whether or not they have something to offer for you, whether or not they have value to you, whether or not that would be a good person for you to reach out to. And if we as Christians use those kinds of external judgments, how someone dresses or where they're from or the accent they have or whatever, you know, the kind of car they drive, 
If that's what we're going to use to evaluate people, we're just going to be so far off the mark. And really, we aren't offering any kind of alternative better than what the, the world has to offer. Now, I know usually around here in Orange County and, and most churches in Southern California, if I go and speak there, there's always people that I know and there's people who know me and it's a very comfortable sort of thing. But this week I was down in Florida and I was speaking at a, a men's conference with a couple thousand men and I just really, I don't know if I knew anyone there, but I, when I, as I walked in before the thing started, they were eating and, and it was kind of weird because I'm looking around and there's couple thousand guys and I don't recognize anyone and I'm just not used to being in that kind of a situation and and nobody's recognizing me which you know sometimes I think is kind of nice but it's a little weird you know and I was supposed to get there for dinner and so I went up to get my dinner and they were asking me for my ticket and I'm like well I don't I don't think I'm supposed to have one I, I, I don't, I'm not registered but I'm speaking at the conference and oh okay but like she wanted ID or something and I'm like, <laughs> And nobody's talking to me, nobody's saying anything. Then I go in and I, and I spoke in the first session. And I came out into the same area and people are just, oh, you know, coming up. And, and all of a sudden, I'm the greatest thing in the world to these people, you know, I, which, again, you know, you hear me all the time, so you know better. But <laughs> sometimes I come off okay first time. So... <laughs> Now everybody wants to talk to me. And I was thinking, you know, what would it be like if you're new and you come to this place and you get treated like I was? Nobody was rude or anything, but it was just like I didn't exist. I walked through the crowd and I didn't really matter to anyone. And they were all loving on each other and, hey, buddy, hey, you know. They were experiencing that. But what's it like to be transparent like that, as opposed to what's it like when you go into a crowd and people are actually glad to see you, and they want to hear from you, and they want to talk about things, and they want, it's, it's a different experience. Well, if anything, the way Jesus wants the church to be is that when anyone comes, they're welcome, they're valued, they're honored, they're appreciated. It doesn't matter if you know them or not. You know something, you know the most important thing about them. Jesus died for them, and they're infinitely valuable, and they also need friends. And we can so often just buddy up with the people that we already know and never reach out to people who are new, and it's because, well, I mean, my buddies are valuable to me. I've, I might have my car break down in the middle of the night and need to call somebody. Can't call somebody who was new to the church last week i got to call somebody that already owes me favors. And, and so that's kind of the way we do it. And we put these values on and we, and we make these assessments and we make these judgments. Think about it. Do you know some people who have become really treasures to you, but if you first looked at them, you would think, no, I don't think so. And then you get to know them and you're kind of surprised that they have a lot to offer. Maybe even you found out they're successful and they just don't look like it or act like it. And then you go, yeah, you'd never know it. I mean, there are people like the guy that started Walmart, Sam Walton. He always dressed really dumpy and drove an old beat-up pickup and everything. And, and so people kind of didn't know what to expect. There's that show on TV right now where it's kind of dumb, but 
the, uh, the CEO of a company will go and become like a regular worker. They call it undercover boss. Now, the way to make that show great would be to put in a hidden camera instead of having a guy falling around with a camera. It's kind of a dead giveaway. I don't care you know, that you haven't shaved for a couple days. But, but the thing is, how many times have we been wrong about someone? How many times have we made a value judgment and missed it, one way or the other? People that you thought you could count on, that you couldn't? People who looked successful, who are failures? People who looked like failures, who are successes? And James is just going, come on, the, the, the kingdom of God is a different place than that. And you cannot judge people by at face value. And so he goes on and says, if you, and, and by the way, you know, he said, there are some rich people that sue you, oppress you, hassle you, and there are some poor people that are really godly. So you just can't tell based on that. He says, if you really, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. He says, the royal law, Jesus set it down. We call it the golden rule. It's what Jesus said when he said, well, what's the most important commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind, all your heart, all your strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you start treating people the way that you would like to be treated, then you will be fulfilling the law, the only law that matters, the law of Christ, the royal law. And so James said, why don't you start there? If, if you were new to a church, how would you want to be treated? How would you want people to approach you? If you had been going for a while and, and you hadn't really met anybody, hadn't really connected, what would you want people to do and how should they treat you? Or if you had gone through a hard time and you used to be successful, but now you're struggling, you're unemployed, and you can just kind of tell it's, you know, you're not doing so well, what would you want people to do toward you? How would you want them to try to minister to you? And he says, do that. Treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And then he says, but if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, if you respond to the face, he said, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. But the one who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. He said, you got to understand this. When you show favoritism, when you assess values to different people and treat them a certain way based on who you perceive they are or they aren't, that's just flat out a sin. You're actually violating the commandment that Jesus said summarizes the whole law. And he said, there's something that you have in common with everyone else when you do that. He said, the law stood as one unit. And Jesus made it clear that if you violate any part of the law, you violated all of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, it's just as bad to murder someone as to call them a, a mean name. So therefore, if you're going to call them a name, why not just kill them while you're at it because it's the same thing? It's, it's not that. 
But it's the idea that all of us come short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And what you are doing by playing favorites is a sin. What you are doing by believing that somehow you are on a higher level than others, that's a sin. And whenever we compare ourselves with others, whenever I decide that someone is beneath me, sit at my footstool, whenever I decide that someone ought to be serving me instead of me serving them, I'm elevating myself in a, in a way that shows that I don't even understand what Jesus did. And I'm putting myself back in a sort of a legal system. And do you really want to be in that kind of scramble? Do you really want to play a hierarchical game of life whereby you have to pretend like you're better than other people so you can look down on them? That way they're not going to look down at you. Do you really want to function within a system whereby there are various stratas of value depending on what you have to offer, on what you've done, on what you have left. And you could be, you've been hot you know, last week, but boom, you're, you're not now. That's not the way he wants us to live. And so he, he reminds us of our sin, and he says, for one thing, you sinned right there. And for another thing, if you've sinned at all, you cannot possibly merit any kind of standing with God. Now, we could play a game where I have all these little stick-on signs of various sins. And so we all get up here and line up, and I say to you, okay, have you ever committed adultery? And you're like, yeah, okay, stick that on, adulterer. You ever steal anything? Oh, man, I got that one too. And I work my way down through what the Bible says. I go, oh, alcoholic. Oh, you, you, you use foul language, um, you're lazy, you're fat, or whatever. And you get all these stickers on you, and now you're walking around with all these stickers, and then we go, okay, now, the people with the least stickers can sit in the front. And we're, we have actually chips and salsa for you during <laughs> church. But you guys with all the stickers all up, and then what you do is the front rows, all people with no stickers, and you get a liar sticker, and you put it on all of them and move them to the back. But James's question is, you really even want to go there? Do you really want to start saying that your identity has to do with your sin? And he goes, it shouldn't be that way, because the same God made all these commands and told you not to judge. And so he says in verse 12, so speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law for us as Christians is a law that sets us free. It's the gospel. It's the fact that Jesus Christ died for us, and now we have been set free. Not free to sin, free to stop it. Free to stop doing the things that's destroying us. And that's the name of the game. It's not about value. It's not about categories. It's not about status. It's about, you know what? I have been set free by Jesus Christ. The law convicted me. And that was the whole reason why the law was given in the Old Testament. But I can't follow the law, and I have received from God that forgiveness, that grace that, that set me free. And he goes on and says, for judgment is without mercy, to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs 
over judgment. You want mercy? You better show mercy. What if people judged you the way you judge others? How would that measure up? Jesus said, your sins will be forgiven if you forgive other people. So you don't think you need to forgive? I hope you don't need forgiveness. Jesus said that you will be judged on the same standard by which you judge others. That mercy comes to people who show mercy, as James says, and is probably kind of paraphrasing Jesus here. So can you really do that? Can you really handle that? If if you have to face God with the sins that you hang on to by judging other people, you sure you want to do that? Is that the way you want to live? We are a community of mercy. We are people who have discovered what Jesus did on the cross. That's what the church is. And this can be no place for judgmentalism. This can be no place for having a pecking order. This can be no place for favoritism. This is the place whereby you can no longer look down on anyone else if you understand what happened on the cross. And on the cross, the only man in this world who ever had the right to look down on anyone looked down on us from up on a hill, from up on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. And if we don't remember that, and if we don't act like that, then the message that has been given to us to share with others will never be understood and communicated by others. Because you cannot share that good news by coming to someone with an attitude that says, I used to be a loser like you. Now look at me. If you want to be like me, join up with us. But of course, I got a head start, so you'll never catch up to me, but someday you can be where I am now, but by then I'll be even better than you. That's the way some testimonies sound like. No, that's not the message of the gospel. It's that there's one thing that makes us all even, and that is sin. We've all sinned. We're all destroying ourselves. And there's one thing that delivers us all, that will one day elevate all of us, glorify all of us, and that is the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. And he took that step. He emptied himself. He gave himself even to the point of death. And as Isaiah said, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Figuring out that you're a part of that all. The all that went astray, but the all whose sins were placed on, on our Savior on the cross causes us, ought to cause us to quit playing the celebrity game, to quit playing the the valuation game, to quit doing the judgment thing, to quit marginalizing certain people and magnifying others. It's disgusting to God when the church starts looking like that. And you know, the amazing thing is, in the church so often, we're so excited if some celebrity accepts the Lord. Even if he's like a D-list celebrity, We're like, wow, you know, it's like, now which bald one is that? Yeah, yeah, the one you never heard of, but he's a Christian, cool, you know, so so what's it like being related to Alec, you know? And it's like, okay, yeah, get up and share your testimony, and and it's like, we don't need to do that. We don't need to play that game. God's not impressed with celebrity. He sees everyone as someone that he loves passionately, 
And the person who is the first person eliminated on The Biggest Loser is just as important to God as the President of the United States. And he says, you guys are all the same. I love all of you and I died for all of you. The church is supposed to be a place where you can take your masks off, you can stop playing games, you can quit trying to impress people because people in the church ought to be the kind of people who don't you know, talk to you until they see somebody more interesting over your shoulder, but they care about you. That's how it's supposed to be. And James is going, what I'm seeing is a disturbing trend whereby you are living by favoritism. You are friendly to the people who kiss up to you or the people who buy you a nice gift or who you like or they look good or they'll make you look good or they might have some connection that could be a help to you. And the people that I send to you who really need your attention and your love you ignore them because you, know, you don't think they could ever do anything for you. So we sit there and use the church as a place to network for our own purposes instead of a place where, where people who are loved by God, people who have been, had that offer of salvation from Jesus Christ can come and find common ground. And James says, that's the way it ought to be. Ultimately, mercy always triumphs over judgment. So do we want to live full of mercy? Do we want to live full of judgment? Mercy wins. And, and so this is a lesson that it's really important for us to receive from James. And remember what he had just said previously in chapter 1 was, yeah, you guys are really religious, but I'll tell you something, real religion is when you go and, and find people who need help, orphans and widows, and you do stuff for them, and you keep, your, keep yourself from just being stained and ruined by the world. So we ought to be really excited when there's an outreach for the homeless and a chance to just do what we've been commanded to do. Um, that's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for looking down on us and saving us. And Lord, I just pray that you'll deliver us from the kind of mentality that causes us to look down on some, to look up at others. Help us to find that common ground at the foot of the cross and help us to live like representatives of you. Help people to see in us what they saw in Jesus, that he had this amazing compassion for the least and the lost as well as a great compassion for rich people and successful people too. He had that ability to treat everyone the same. And Lord, would you please help us to do just that? Lord, transform us so that we'll follow the golden rule from the heart. Help us to treat people in the church the way we would want to be treated. In Jesus' name, amen.